This morning we've got a real treat for us. Um, we've got Steve Lee speaking, and Steve is a friend of mine, first of all, I want to say. Steve and I have been um, in churches together over the years. We've known each other for some, I don't know, 15 plus years, I should think, and worked with us when I was at... Feels longer. Feels, it feels like forever for you. It feels like just a blink of an eye for me, Steve, but thanks very much. Steve's a friend of mine, and I know he's also been a friend of New Life Church over the years, and we were just standing here this morning thinking it's great that, that he's coming back, he's been here a few times, but I've never had the pleasure of having Steve here while, um, you know, while I've been here the last three years, so it's really good to have you here. And Steve has, has been uh, leading an organization called Miracle Street for a number of years now, getting out onto the streets, telling people the story of Jesus Christ, and that, that getting on the streets has led him not just into England, but over into Europe, and especially this last season into Calais and north of France, and so I won't do all the storytelling, I'll let Steve do that, he's much better than I am, but Steve is a brilliant communicator, you're going to enjoy yourself this morning, but can I just encourage you to tune in, get ready, because you're going to hear some great stuff this morning, and, and lastly I want to say, can we give Steve a massive, massive Freedom Church welcome this this morning. Steve, over to you. Thanks, Sim. Quite looking forward to hearing myself speak. <laughs> so it's really nice to be with you today. Um, so I'm Steve, married to Lorraine. Lorraine's there. We've got three kids, one of each. Um, uh, Robbie's with us today, just gone out, and we've got two others as well. Live in Southampton. Um, I feel, I'm going to say one or two things about our experiences in Calais, but I feel like I should be saying, Jane, ask Jane if you want to know anything about the Calais migrant campus. She seems to be the, the person that you need to speak to about every, about every, every detail about what's going on. So, uh, so let me just tell you a quick story. Um, there's a story told of, a, of an old uh, pilot, very experienced pilot, who was flying a single-engine plane into a very rural airfield in the northwest of America. And as he came into land, he realized that he'd made a mistake. And the mistake is that he should never have taken off because the light was pretty poor. Um, he felt that it would just be enjoyable just to have a sort of a late evening flight and then he would come into land. But the problem is that he had no instruments on this particular aircraft. There were no lights on the runway. And as he came into the descent, he realized the error of his ways and that he should not have taken off in the first place. And he couldn't make out the airfield because the sun had just dipped behind the mountains. So he made the decision to go round again for a second attempt at the landing. Only then as he came in, he realized that the light was almost completely gone and the darkness was impenetrable. And for the next two hours, this panic-stricken pilot flew around the airfield, try, uh, the airfield trying to find the airfield, knowing that if the engine failed, if the fuel ran out, that the plane would literally plummet out of the sky. It was only then that an old Second World War pilot, who would have been very old at that time, was sitting in his house in front of the fire about a mile or so from the airfield. And almost like an instinct, he hears the drone in the background and he understands immediately what's going on. So he goes out of his house, jumps in his car and hurtles to this airfield. And then he gets to the runway itself, to the airstrip. It was just a grass airstrip. And he shines his lights down the airfield and then goes up and down the airfield. And then after about three or four times, he parks the car. I think it was an old pickup truck. And he shone his headlights full beam down the runway. And moments later, the aircraft came into land with the fuel light flickering. 
Do you know what? I think there is a sense for so many of us, probably all of us, and certainly my experience, which I'll talk about in a second in northern France on the Calais migrant camp, we are all trying to find our way home. There is a something within us that really kind of resonates with this whole idea of being a migrant and even a refugee. We are trying to find our way home. We're trying to find a connection with a father. We've had a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week um, presence on the Calais migrant camp for a number of months. And I never intended it to be a big project, actually. It's, it, it's become that. And uh, I've had the opportunity of traveling around a number of churches in the UK talking about our experiences. And it's been quite a weird thing because I think often what happens is that people kind of think you're some sort of self-appointed expert on immigration or the migrant crisis, which of course I'm not. It was a very personal thing for me. But what we've been able to do is channel the efforts not just of our team and our organization, Miracle Street, but lots of other churches, Christians, particularly not just Christians, uh, but been able to work and collaborate and partner with a lot of people who have been emotionally uh, moved, who have felt empathy and sympathy for the plight of all of those people, particularly in Calais. And um, we've seen people come to Christ there. Um, Often people say to me, is, you know, how do you work as a Christian in a, essentially a Muslim environment, which of course, as you know, it is, uh, 96%, something like that. But what we have found is that there are a lot of people who are ethnically and sort of culturally Muslim, but they're not particularly religious. So it's been quite an interesting environment, actually, working there. So as I said, there's really been a it's been a bit been a personal journey for me. It was never a project that we decided that we would launch. Uh, it was something which happened to me, particularly around September, October. And there were three things which kind of came together and sort of collided at the same time, which really was the beginning of us going to Calais. And this was the first thing. This um, uh, 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 slogan, this sentence appeared on Facebook, just the one before that. Um, it said this, and it really gripped me. Some of you may have seen it. When you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. And, uh, and it really disturbed me, actually, because I thought, Do you know what, there's something very personal in this in terms of a challenge about my own lifestyle, my own tastes and preferences. But I knew that something was happening that was going to mean uh, a very a big decision for me, for Miracle Street. Uh, the second thing was this uh, image, which um, really has become an, an iconic image. Um, it, it, it really went viral across the world, social media platforms very quickly. And it was, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you do, but it's the, it's the body of a three-year-old Syrian boy that was washed up on a Turkish beach. It's a very political image. Um, I'm not going to go into all the conspiracy theories around it today, um, but there are lots of things that people feel about this image. But I guess like a lot of us here as a parent, you have a, a very a, a, a kind of a gut reaction to seeing something like that. So I read this thing on Facebook, when you have more than you need, be it a longer table, not a higher fence. Then I saw this image. And this was the third element of it. And... Um, we have this big event trailer, uh, which we call the main stage. And uh, it was at the time when I saw these other two things. Uh, we were about to dry dock the trailer in Normandy, which is where it's been for the last two or three years. Before that, it was in Spain. 
And uh, I felt that, you know, God really took hold of me. Um, I appreciate you. Maybe some of us are visitors here. We're kind of not used to this kind of God language. You know, stick with me. Uh, uh, but, you know, it kind of feels like a little bit like hearing voices. I appreciate that. But I did feel something in my gut, in my emotion, in my heart. I felt a voice speaking to me that I recognized as the voice of the Father. And uh, I felt him say to me, I don't want that trailer in a warehouse. I want it on the Calais refugee camp. And... Um, that was really the launching point for us, and I had to do um, a little bit of PR work with the team and the trustees um, as to why I wanted to put our 200 grand trailer on a refugee camp uninsured, which is what it was, at least for the first three months until Lloyds of London wrote, it, wrote a risk for us. Uh, that was pretty expensive, uh, but we eventually got it insured. And uh, these images, really, let me just tell you the story just in a few moments of what uh, we got up to. Okay, here's the first one. So that's the truck, obviously, um, on the camp. Um, we realized that we could do something practically. Um, a lot of the guys on the team are very experienced. Some of them are builders. One or two of them are electricians. And at that time, there was an awful lot of organizations and churches sending sleeping bags and food and uh, timber for making huts and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and in many ways, the warehouse in Calais was overrun, certainly in the first few months around September, well, July, August, September time. They had really too much, uh, uh, too many supplies. And I thought, what else can we do? And and so I started to feel, okay, I think we can generate electricity. I think we can provide electricity because on the trailer, uh, we've got this huge generator. And um, I chatted to one or two of the guys and I said, you know, what can we do? And, and one guy particularly who works with me said, well, actually, I think we can cable uh, uh, the area of the site that we're going to be. And we started to run cables into the medical centers and... And uh, a lot of vulnerable people, there were some semi-derelict, well, semi-derelict uh, caravans that were around uh, the area of where the truck was. And on the first day that we arrived, uh, a Syrian guy spoke great English, came up to us, spoke to me, actually. And, uh, and he said, look, he said, that, that caravan over there, about 50 meters away from where the truck was, he said, you know, I've got my, mother, my mother-in-law in there, my wife. Um, I think it was a one-year-old and a four-year-old. He said, they've, ne- they've not left the caravan for 10 days. I'm just trying to get food. He said, we're freezing. Is there anything you can do to help us? And, uh, and I said to Tim, I said, look, you know, what can we do? And he, and he said, well, we can put an armor cable in the ground. We took a lot of cabling in from the UK. And I said, is it safe and legal? And he said, it's safe. <laughs> and I said, well, we'll do it then. Uh, so that was really the beginning of us providing electricity to a number of very vulnerable families, but particularly the 24-hour medical centers. Okay. Uh, what's this one? Okay, so that is um, something like 150 meters of armor cabling. It's so expensive, that stuff. I couldn't believe it. It's about four grand, that reel of cable. And uh, in the background, you'll see another image. Now, that image, and I won't I've got time to talk too much about it, but I've been involved in Second World War history all my life. It's kind of my big thing. It's my big interest. And one of the stories that has been very powerful for me is the story of the Pluto pipeline, Pluto pipeline under the ocean. And uh, it was an audacious Second World War plan to put a, a, a submarine cable between Cherbourg on the Isle of Wight. Uh, that's not on the Isle of Wight. Uh, Sandown on the Isle of Wight. Geography, big subject. Uh, Sandown on the Isle of Wight to Cherbourg in northern France. 
And uh, it was laid in one night, and 156 million gallons of fuel went through it. It was undetected um, until it was too late, and victory in Europe was secure. Um, eventually, the, uh, the pipelines were extended over land as the Allied armies went further and further into France and Belgium and Holland. And the pipeline eventually crossed the Rhine into Germany itself. It is a breathtaking story. And I felt God take hold of me with this story about 15 years ago, that we would uh, put in place a pipeline of supply from the south coast of England to the northern coast of France. And of course, I didn't know at that time what was going to happen in terms of the migrant crisis, but it has resonated so strongly in me that there is something we are doing that is linked with the Pluto pipeline. So when we got this cable run, I said to the guys, you know what, it's like a miniature version of this giant kind of cotton reel. That's the Second World War picture. Uh, that giant cotton reel that laid the Pluto pipeline. So in it all, it's been a very... It's been a very spiritual journey for us, a very kind of prophetic journey, if you understand that term. And, you know, really it's something which for me has been very rooted in the heart of God and something that, you know, God has been showing us for a number of years. Uh, so the cable, uh, the cable drum then became the games table. So once we'd used all the cable, this, these are some of the Syrian and particularly Sudanese guys that we were working with. And, and I think, you know, if we'd have taken that cable away, I think they would have been pretty cross because it kind of was the games table. And uh, it was amazing how something very practical, you know, really kind of sort of dovetailed in with something that was really relational. And uh, really for six months, you know, we had up to 150 guys every night around the truck and we had, you know, football, a, a table football and you know, chess and drafts and table tennis and everything. It just became like a community, community hub um, around the truck um, over those months. Okay, so uh, this is the image that was in the uh, um, Sunday Telegraph. Uh, that's where it says Wi-Fi charging station. That's our truck. Um, when I saw that, I thought, I'm quite encouraged that they've kind of picked us out as being a key site, but we're doing one or two other things other than providing electricity, uh, but we, we, we did work with a Dutch um, telecom company, and we had a 4G mast on top of the roof of the trailer because it was the highest point of the camp, and uh, you know, lots of guys were able to get in touch with loved ones, obviously via internet, Skype, and FaceTime, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, you know, this was the time, really, when um, the camp was very big. Um, it grew to about 6,000 people. You can see that area to the left, um, that when we moved in, that was exactly the same as everything else, but that was getting ready for the container site, which you'll see in a moment. Okay, that's it. Um, very controversial. Um, basically, what happened in a, you know, very quickly is that the, the French authorities decided that they would close an area of the camp and put, it, put people into these containers. Um, they look horrible. It looks like an open prison. In fact, it is like an open prison. But there was a lot of uh, uh, security in, in many other ways, in terms of electricity and sanitation and stuff like that. Um, but, but really, a lot of people didn't want to go in it um, because they had to give up any hope of becoming um, a, a resident of the UK. They had to begin the asylum process in France. So that was really the beginning of the controversy. Okay, what's next? Okay, um, that's a guy called Tafiri. He became my friend. And uh, I actually brought this cross to show you this morning. Uh, this is it. This is the cross that was on top of the church in the camp and was all over the media uh, in this country. And uh, it was very controversial because it got demolished 
Uh, we helped those guys rebuild. The church grew to about 70 on the camp, um, with particularly Iranians becoming Christians. And, uh, and we partnered with those guys for, for a, a, in all sorts of different ways. And we, we funded them, and we gave them resources. And a lot of the guys that worked with me, very practical, we helped reconstruct the church uh, when it got demolished. So that's the cross, and that's Tefiri holding it. Okay, so really um, over the course of the last, um, you know, six months, you know, I've taken an awful lot of um, loaded and very political questions from people. Um, I've run a lot of kind of public events almost to, to share about the story, as I said. A lot of it is because people really want to know what the facts are. Um, I, I got to I have an interesting connection with Kent Police at the border in Calais. Obviously, they clocked my number plate. And uh, I got asked a lot of questions, and one particular time I was pulled over, and uh, this guy in a big high-vis puffer jacket said to me, you know, could we have a conversation? I thought, this is a conversation. What is a conversation if this isn't it? And he went, no, a proper conversation. And I went, okay, now I'm slightly worried. Um, so I went into a porter cabin with this guy, and he basically was the highest-ranking police officer in the port in Calais, but it was obviously the English borders in Calais. And he asked me all sorts of questions about what I felt, about whether I, I, IS were there, whether there was a threat, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and it really was quite amazing to me that, you know, even the police didn't know what was going on in the camp. But the problem is, is that the media is focused on 40, 50, maybe 60 guys who sleep during the day and spend their nights uh, in the port or at the, or at the tunnel, mouth of the tunnel, trying to get into the UK. And of course, 6,000 other people slept in their beds very peacefully while all that was going on. And uh, I ended up, you know, agreeing to become almost like an informer uh, for Kent Police, you know, because we were present on the camp. And, you know, really in, in it all, you know, and this is where I want to slightly gear change into one or two other things that I feel I want to just share with you this morning. You know, I, I've learned that it, you know, it, it isn't my job to decide whether someone deserves my help or not. Um, our job, I believe, is to do what Jesus would have done, to do what Jesus do, to walk in the way that Jesus would have walked, you know. And, and you know, I have a view, I have an opinion about the political stuff, as I'm sure most of you do here today. But really what we've been involved in has been really kind of, you know, ground-level, compassionate stuff. It's not been about the politics. Obviously, people want to get in our vehicles, you know, and come through the tunnel. You know, we have not even got into conversations about that. And we have kind of tr tread, uh, trod, trodden, trod, this really... <laughs> Difficult line between what I would say is an extreme right-wing position, UKIP and further right, to the kind of people who are the real sort of no-borders brigade, you know, who many of which have come straight from greenfield sites in Oxford to lie in front of diggers, you know, because they hate the police and they hate the French and all this kind of stuff. And of course, those things are the bookends. You know, the rest of us all fit in somewhere in the middle. But the problem is, is that when you have people that are highly political, they really don't get a lot done on the ground because they're talking about it just at the sort of ether of morality and politics and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, we've tried to operate in a slightly different way to that. So the motivation for me and the reason why I made the big call to go in in the way we did is really quite simple. It's because the gospel is about the extravagant grace of God. Uh, and I don't know what any of us would do without that. You know, the gospel is not just something that we do. It's not just something that we believe in. It is the means by which each one of us has been saved for, from the certainty of personal disaster. 
You know, that's what grace is all about. And I love the way that the Bible contrasts this extreme of what people often describe as the outrageous grace of God. It's my sunglasses. Hope nothing else falls off. Uh, with the bland kind of religious laws and regulations that some of us have grown up with. This is what Romans 5 verse 20 says in the message, which I, I love the message, or the, the Mills and Boone Bible as some people call it. But what I like about the message is that it just seems to capture this kind of language of the street, that Jesus didn't come to the religious elite. He came for the street people. He came for the working class and the underclass. And they were the people who gravitated towards him. They were the people who hung on his every word. It was the high-faluted religious academic types that wanted him strung up. Jesus was a man of the street. And I love what it says in Romans. This is what it says. All that passing laws against sin did was to produce more lawmakers, lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins, hands down. Do you know what? It's so easy for me, for us, to receive this kind of grace and then means test everyone else before we pass it on. Isn't it? It's so easy. Or to put another way, we pole vault over grace and we miss the crash mat of understanding and then face plant in the mud of self-righteousness. That is often what happens. And I've grown to understand over the years that a lot of people are not in our churches, not because they don't believe what we believe, because I think most people do believe in God, but they don't actually feel that they're good enough. And we have to be very careful in the way that we handle this whole issue of grace because it is for everybody. Even a, a, even a glance, even a fleeting glance at the life and works of Jesus reveals a heart of extreme compassion. And probably it's true to say an emphasis towards the poor, the forgotten, the maligned, the misplaced. But here's a grace encounter that is hidden in the pages of the Old Testament. And uh, the story's a beautiful one. Uh, this is what it says in 2 Samuel 9, verse 13. Then I'll just explain the context a bit. Mephibosheth, which is easy for me to say, lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Okay, here's the context of that story. King Saul, okay, the, the, the house of King Saul has fallen um, because of his disobedience, his occult activity, and uh, the abuse of power, and uh, the blessing and the grace of God have been lifted off him in terms of his future of being the king, and it had passed to this guy, David. Now, even if you're not used to kind of church and the Bible, you'll know the story of David and Goliath. You know, this, this slightly comical story where, a, you know, an 11-year-old kills a giant with a catapult. You know, it's uh, probably, I would sort of imagine him in a sort of pair of Winnie the Pooh underpants. You know, this kind of kid sort of terrorizing, you know, uh, the known world at that time. He was a hot shot with the catapult. And, uh, you know, it's another story for another day, but it's probably true to say that when everybody else saw a shepherd boy, God saw a king. Because there was something in him. He understood the currency of grace. 
He understood, and he needed to understand it because of what happened in his life a number of times. But he understood grace. So David's star is rising. David has been anointed as the future king, and Saul is on the way out. And there is this feud, there is this kind of war going on between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now this guy Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul. And while this conflict is being worked out, he is being carried by a nurse or a carer, and she falls, fleeing from one of these conflicts, and he is injured in both of his legs, and he's disabled as a result of that accident. Very interesting that he is, he is injured because he is fleeing. Somebody is fleeing who's carrying him. And he is someone who walks right into the grace of the king as a result. Sometime later in the story, David is installed as king and uh, he sends for Mephibosheth, who is understandably nervous at being summoned by the king. Because the custom of that day was that the new king basically exterminated everybody else that was part of the old dynasty. So King David basically says, you know, is there anybody left of King's kind of crew? And they say, well, yeah, there is this one guy, Mephibosheth, he says, send for him. Now, you imagine the terror that is in that young man's heart as a result of being summoned to the very presence of King David. But instead of receiving rejection, Mephibosheth is lavished with grace by David. David took a massive political risk in helping that disabled guy, but he did it because he understood grace. And only two chapters later, he needs it for himself because he breaks half of the Ten Commandments in one hit. And he walks into a moral collapse that almost finishes him off. But when God looked at David and God described David as a man after my own heart, that was because fundamentally he understood grace. It wasn't because of his behavior, clearly, because <laughs> he made mistakes. But something in that beautiful picture of the way that David interacted with that guy Mephibosheth revealed the content of his heart and the nature of his character. So let's now fast forward a whole millennium to the arrival of Jesus and the announcing of his ministry in Luke 4. You see it behind me. So just imagine the electricity that is around this particular moment. Okay, Jesus has arrived. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on. There's a whole history of people predicting of what the Messiah, the chosen one, the liberator would look like. And now Jesus is about to announce his public ministry. This is like his inauguration speech. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, old book, was handed to him. Unrolling it, it's like a drama. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, 
gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then here's the comedy. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. <laughs> Isn't he the carpenter's son? You know, he's, he's made a couple of decent Welsh dresses, but, you know, what's all this kind of, you know, Isaiah stuff? You know, the great Isaiah scroll? What's it all about? You see, this is the new era in God's dealings with humanity. Up until that time, the presence of God, the favor of God, relationship with God was only reserved for kings, prophets, priests, people who had the right gear, the right kind of family, the right sort of upbringing, knew the script. They had the opportunity to just get a little bit closer to God than everybody else. Suddenly now, the way has been opened. The temple veil, the veil that hung in the temple, that was there basically to keep God in and the people out, that was ripped in two when Jesus died. But we see from these kinds of scriptures that the presence of God, the temple curtain is being ripped open metaphorically long before Jesus ever died. Because he's bringing in a new way. He's saying this is for everybody. Blessed are the poor. It's almost like Jesus performs a sort of soft reset and restores everything back to the factory default of God's heartbeat for the broken. In this incredibly tense encounter, Jesus recites a 750-year-old text from the great Jewish prophet. Isaiah is often referred to by Bible scholars as the fifth gospel because it is literally dripping with messianic content. It's full of imagery, predictions, prophetic words, stuff about what the Christ would look like, his life, his birth, the people that he would hang out with, his death, his interaction, his behavior, his language. It's all there. And Jesus chooses to read from that book to announce the beginning of his own ministry and his emphasis towards the busted and the broken. Of course, Isaiah, you know, it, it was given massive credibility by the discovery of the great Isaiah scroll in a cave in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was one of them. And uh, quite embarrassment, you know, to a lot of scientific geniuses who were convinced the Bible was written in the 12th century AD. So when we engage in activity, and as we have in Calais and obviously other places and all the great things that you are all involved in as well. When we are involved in stuff that is focused around the rejected, it is not a project, it's not something to do. It's not just something to support, but I believe that it is, and I'm growing in my understanding of this, that it is the essence of the gospel itself. Now, it's not the whole gospel. I don't believe we should just be doing 
stuff like that. And as I'll tell you in a moment, you know, we've, we've run into some you know, very significant problems, very significant problems. It's not enough just to meet the physical need because ultimately we've got to put truth in the hearts of them as well. And so it's not two things. It's not sort of good works and, eva- and evangelism. It's not like these kind of like two prongs. I don't believe that. There is a synergy. There is something that we've got to discover where we are fully engaged, but we are doing it with an understanding that truth needs to be worked into the hearts of every person. And it's going to look different in different situations. It's not this kind of bland, religious, one-size-fits-all cloak that we throw over human pain. You know, we've got to work out what that looks like in each situation. So back to Calais. After, after six months of us being involved full-time, things became extremely challenging with the destruction of 30 acres of the 50-acre site. And uh, the biggest problem, I would, I would say, in my opinion, is that the nationalities that were living separately across the camp, you know, you'd have a Sudanese area, a Somali area, an Eritrean, an Ethiopian, an Iranian, an Afghan. They were Syrian, huge Syrian areas as well. And they were all work- and there was a harmony. It was like a town. You know, there was a lot of peace going on. I, there's a guy called Alistair who works with me, as some of you may know. And uh, Alistair basically lived on our truck full-time for six months. And after about three months, I've obviously went out there lots of times, but in three months, I, I went out there and I took him out for a coffee and I sat him down. I said, right, Ali, this is kind of like the line management chat. And I said, you know, how's it going? And he went, yeah, fine. And I went, okay, how's it going? You know, and I basically probed a little deeper than just, you know, is everything working all right? I said, do you feel safe? Have you ever felt intimidated? And he he looked at me as if I was mad. And he said to me, no. He said, not once. Not once in three months of living there full time had he ever felt unsafe, had he ever been threatened, had he ever been intimidated in any way. Now, we've worked on some of the most volatile council estates in the UK, and I would say Calais is nothing compared to some of those places. And yet, of course, the reaction when you say, you know, well, we work on the Calais jungle migrant camp, really? Really? And you're still alive? You see, don't believe what the media tells you. But after six months of us being there, um, that's what happened. And this is the image that I just want to show you. This is quite recent. Okay, that is the before and after shot. Okay, so that first one on the left, that was taken, let me just look at that. I think that was probably October to November, something like that. And this is only about three weeks old. So the area that we were present in, where the truck was, was really the only area that was left. And, um, you know, everyone else either moved on, particularly to Dunkirk or to some of the other camps in Belgium. And one or two of the other port towns that are... Um, you know, becoming real hotspots. And then, you know, they all basically, the ones that were left, moved into the northern area. And it became very difficult, very violent. And uh, we had an incident outside our base, which really meant that, you know, with the 20 guys, there was a big fight. 20 guys were in hospital. One guy was nearly killed. Another guy was stabbed that we led to Christ. And it was very, very difficult. And I realized that we needed to make a big shift. And uh, 
we, we brought the end to our physical presence there in terms of permanently, and now we're, we're, we're working mobile now into a number of other places. And uh, so the big question that I often get asked is, well, what, what next? And, uh, and we have a plan. I was going to show you a little video clip, but because of time, I won't, I won't do that. I'll tell you uh, uh, what's in it. Um, so about three years ago, I just had this idea about bread. I mean, I love bread. I really do love bread. Um, but it wasn't about my love of bread. Um, it was about bread being a powerful metaphor for the gospel. And you all know, or most of you will know, that bread features hugely in the Bible. It's so, it's, the Bible's full of images and stories about bread. You know, from the, 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 the uh, uh, migrating Israelite community in the Old Testament that were fed by manna from the sky, bread that literally fell out of the skies to feed a migrating people. Very interesting. And then years later, Jesus physically reenacts that story with the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus goes onto a place. Matthew and Mark both refer to that mountain as a remote place. 5,000 people or more, that's just the guys. Jesus breaks the bread, offers it to heaven, and multiplies it. And there would have been people in that crowd, in fact, everyone in that crowd who were Jewish, and they would have been looking at Jesus thinking, This guy understands our ways, our book, our history, our culture. Jesus was very careful to connect culturally with the people that he spoke to. And then Jesus, of course, said, I am the bread of life. The bread is not enough. You need more than the bread. You need me, the bread of life. Man shall not live by bread alone. So we've got this idea. It was more than an idea. I mean, it's in full, it's in, uh, you know, it's foot to the floor, you know, to actually put bread ovens on our vehicles and, and cook bread on the streets, give bread away, bake bread, uh, let the aroma fill the air and to meet a physical need, but to use that as a way of communicating the gospel. So, you know, as I sort of come into land, you know, really for, for me, you know, it's not about, um, you know, the name Miracle Street is very close to my heart, you know, but from the very beginning, it was all about this stuff. It wasn't sort of isolated healings on the street, miracles on the street kind of thing. It was about transformation. It was about bringing street church to people who know nothing about God and have no connection with the church whatsoever. And, um, you know, even after sort of nearly 30 years of doing what I've been doing full time, I mean, I just feel like I'm really starting to paddle in the edge of what really God has asked me to do. And, um, and my final little quote, just to throw up there, is something that Churchill said, and he said this, this is no time for ease or comfort. It is a time to dare and endure. And uh, I think for a lot of us, you know, and maybe that's where we're at, uh, you know, that we, we have to push into the real story, uh, the things that maybe we've cut, carried for a long time, and uh, that's certainly where I'm at. Um, but there may be people here as well, and you've just listened to you know, my ramblings and thought, you know what, I, I, I believe in God, but I don't know God. Um, I have an understanding of probably that there is a God. But, but how, how do I meet him? How do I connect with that? Well, you see, it's so simple. A child of three can understand it. You see, it's religion that makes it complicated. It's really simple. We have to come to that point where we have to recognize that we've spoiled our lives, that we haven't lived up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. But God didn't leave it there. He made a way. He sent his son, and the God who was everywhere became somewhere in Jesus. And Jesus physically walked the turf. He walked the planet, God in human flesh. He lived this incredible life, and then he died on a cross. Some people say, well, why did Jesus die? If he only did good things, who would want to kill Jesus? Well, 
I'll tell you why, and then I'll take a couple of seconds to explain what it means. The Bible says this, that when God's law is broken, someone has to pay. What does that really mean? What does that really mean in 2016? Well, God's law is perfect because he is sinless in every way. He is the author of life. Well, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in a rather precarious position because we are separated from God because of the things that you've done and I've done in thought, word, and action that have wrecked that perfect relationship that God always intended us to live. But rather than just sort of nuking it and starting all over again, God invaded our time-space world through the life of his son, Jesus. And Jesus hung on a cross. So I brought the cross this morning, the other reason. Jesus hung on the cross, which is why you'll find one of these on a buildings all over the world. It is the symbol. Of course, it's like the slogan, the logo of Christianity. Jesus hung on a cross. And in doing that, he said, I will be the bridge. I will bring together these two separated parties. And that's why it is so central that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. That's what he said. There is only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. So a Christian is really somebody who says sorry to God and believes that when Jesus died, he paid a debt that was, set, that he paid a debt that was due over your life and mine. And by accepting that, we can actually know reconciliation with God and the beginning of everything that you've experienced and everything you've seen today in the lives of these two people that got baptized and of course others in the room as well. I'm going to pray as I finish and um, I think I'm okay on time. Um, I'm going to pray and and really this is a prayer not for everybody else who was here every week maybe but maybe some of you here for the first time or you've been here a few times and you're just looking on you're thinking actually I would like to know actually how to connect properly with this, what is it that these people have got? Well, this will actually give you that connection. Okay, it's just a simple prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer of commitment to God, and I'll leave a little space in between, like a, so you can make it your prayer. You can say it not out loud, but on the inside, you can make it your prayer. And I promise you that if you take this step towards God, He will take a very larger step towards you because His grace is for you today. Let's all pray. This is the prayer. Father God in heaven, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to live a life and to die a death. And then to rise once again. Thank you that he did that for me. For my brokenness and sin. In order that I could be a child of God. In this life. And into eternity beyond. I choose for you today. Because you chose for me. 2,000 years ago. Fill me with your life giving power today that I would live first for you clean me from the inside out and make me a child of God